For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, well, we've been working our way through Genesis chapter 1, and that's still, we're not going to get any further than that tonight, I'm sorry to tell you. This is mistitled, (laughs) I should say Genesis 1. Um, We started off with this verse, though, it's a pretty big verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins, God's revelation to us. And over the last two weeks, we've learned several things. We've seen that modern physics does agree that space and time had a starting point. In fact, there was sort of like some controversy lately in the area of cosmology. Have you guys been following this? These guys in, uh, yeah, a few maybe. Scientific American, February this year, these couple physicists released a, um, an article questioning the Big Bang cosmology. And uh, just last month, Hawking, Martin Rees, and 31 other top physicists released this letter just completely beating those guys down. This is still the, the widely accepted view of the origins. Space and time had a starting point. Scripture tells us that when the beginning began, God was there, that he is the, the uncaused cause that set all of this in motion. He had the power and the, and the wisdom and the the knowledge to do it. It also, we saw big differences between the biblical creation account and other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. We talked about the violent, highly sexualized depictions, the kinds of things that human beings would come up with gods battling one another and then ripping the one god's corpse open and then the one half is the, the, the sea and the other half is the sky. None of that in scripture. It says simply God was there and he created by his word. There was no contest. There was no question of who was going to win. This was from the very beginning a a decision by God to act. And we also talked about how we don't need to believe in a 6,000-year-old earth in order to believe scripture, which is unfortunately what a lot of people think. If I believe the universe is older than 6,000 years old, then I have to reject the Bible. And we talked about the range of interpretations, for example, for the word day, yom. And um, the uh, flexibility we have in being totally faithful to interpret Genesis 1 as a real historical account, and yet also harmonize that with modern science. We also talked about this continuum last time, the difference between an origin that is completely supernatural and an origin for life and creation as we know it as natural. You know, on the one hand of the spectrum is the argument that everything was made through supernatural invention. It was just miracle after miracle, every creative act, uh, often known as young earth creationism. And these argue that evolution doesn't account for life at all. And I talked about my problems with that. We critique that view. We also talked about the other end of the spectrum, that life and Matter all came about through natural processes. There was no divine intervention at all. No, nothing supernatural was at work. And this argues that evolution completely accounts for life. And of course, we talked about problems with that last week as well, like these questions here that I asked. For one, if evolution completely accounts for life, how did the universe even begin in the first place? You can't invoke evolution at that point. It wouldn't even exist. Evolution does not apply yet. How did the universe begin so finely tuned for life? And we talked about our, how our, our universe and, our, and Earth is perfectly designed to a very high level of precision. A level of precision so high that the odds against it are one in a number 
That would require writing a zero on every proton, neutron, electron in the universe. Those are the odds against it. We talked about how did, we asked this question, how did living organisms come from non-living matter? You can't invoke evolution at that point. The problem of abiogenesis. We wondered, what are, why are there so many gaps in the fossil record? And we also asked this question, is evolution really sufficient to explain the diversity and complexity of life? Those are five questions that come to mind for me. We talked about all of those last time. And based on negative answers to these, I would also rule out that evolution could completely account for life as well. I also put forth this possibility that it was possibly a mixture of natural processes and supernatural intervention. And, you know, we also need to make sure that we don't draw this hard dichotomy between God working and natural processes because God is the one who designed the natural processes. He's the one who set them up. He's the one who sustains the creation as it is going. And one day God's going to say enough and he's going to bring this present age to an end. And so God sometimes works through supernatural, but usually he's working through natural processes. And we said that some combination of these two, I don't know exactly what the, the mix is. I wasn't there for all of it. None of you were either. Uh, but I think it's plausible that you have some combination of these. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, I want to just talk about a couple options for interpreting Genesis 1, and then we'll read down through the whole chapter up to the last couple verses. And um, we'll just talk about how someone from these perspectives might interpret that. And the first one is called the literary framework theory. I just have three options here. And this one basically says Genesis 1 has no chronology. It's a poetic arrangement. And we learn nothing about chronology, really nothing about chronology or history it's a logical rather than a chronological arrangement. And so someone taking this view of Genesis 1, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about how there are days on the first day this happened, on the second day God made this. Well, they would point out the first three days, God makes these things. He makes light and darkness, the seas and the sky, the sea, the land, the plants. It's sort of making the environment. He doesn't have these living creatures in here yet in the sense we would think of that. But these are the environments. You know, it talks about how the whole, the, the earth was formless and empty. And so he's kind of creating a space for things to go. And then in days five, four, five, and six, he, he creates the, the thing corresponding to the things in days one through three. So for example, light and darkness are on day one, while the sun and the moon come about on day four. The seas in the sky come about on day two. Well, on day five, he makes sea creatures and birds. You know, seas in the, sea creatures in the sea, birds in the air, right? On day three, he, makes this, he kind of separates the sea to make land, and there's plants. And on day six, you have land animals and humans, things that are on the land. And, um, you know, this is interesting, this analysis of Genesis 1. It doesn't exactly work out. It doesn't, I don't think, live up quite to what it claims. You know, the notion that days one through three make the space, and then four, five, and six, he fills the space. I mean, it kind of works for like, you know, I mean, the sea creatures, they live in the sea, right? That works, you know? But like the sun and moon, they don't live in the light and darkness. They produce that light. You know, the sun and moon, if anything, should maybe map up with the sky on day two or something. Also, yeah, birds fly in the sky, but they still live on the land. And a lot of birds can't even fly. I mean, where does this literary framework theory leave the penguin, for example? 
the ostrich. <laughs> so, um, and I just, it, it seems, Genesis 1 sort of seems like there's a chronology. It seems like it's building towards something. I guess, I guess you could have some overlap of these days. I guess you could have maybe some mixing around, but I don't know. It doesn't quite do it for me. I suppose this could contribute something to our understanding of Genesis 1. The second one is called the recreation or sometimes known as the gap theory. Let me explain what this is and I'll show you when we read Genesis 1 how it works. The basic idea is this. God worked through natural and supernatural processes over billions of years to create the universe and the earth. And then, sometime in the recent past, maybe you know, on the range of tens of thousands of years ago, some sort of worldwide disaster happened. And day one in our Genesis 1 begins God, God's recent recreation of the world as we know it. And so we could still measure a very, very, very old earth. And God, you know, but there was some sort of disaster 50,000 years ago, something like that. I don't know. And we'll, we'll, I'll show you where that comes from in the text. Third, and finally, there's a group of theories called the day-age day theory. And this one says that these days of Genesis 1 span very long periods of time where God worked through natural and supernatural processes. These are whole ages or epochs. And I kind of mentioned this week one, and we'll, we'll talk about how this plays out in the text. So those are a couple of options here. And let's just start with Genesis 1-1 again. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we said the heavens and the earth is sort of a compound expression that just means everything that there is. All created matter in the universe. And then it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right. And um, John Collins points out here something sort of interesting. He says in 1-1 where it says, God created the heavens and the earth. He says the verb created in Genesis 1-1 is in the perfect tense. And the normal use of the perfect at the very beginning of a pericope or a, you know, a, a narrative is to denote an event that took place before the storyline gets underway. This tense is used to give backstory. It switches to a different tense once you hit verse 3. That's the story it's telling in Genesis 1. But what you have in 1-1 is something already in place before the story begins. And so John Lennox points out, this means that the question of the age of the earth and of the universe is a separate question from the interpretation of the days, a point that is frequently overlooked. In other words, he says, quite apart from any scientific considerations, the very text of Genesis 1-1, in separating the beginning from day one, leaves the age of the universe indeterminate. Let me show you what I mean by this. Look, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if that refers to the universe, let's just take the age of the universe according to most accepted you know, scientific practices. And that would, that would be about 13.8 billion years ago. But it, then it, when it says the earth, well, the earth, most people think it's a little less than 4.6 billion years old. And so, no matter what, how you slice it, it looks like a lot of time has passed between verse 1 and verse 2. Also, verse 2, I pointed this out week 1, and I said I would get back into this. 
There's already stuff there, but that stuff is what it calls formless and empty. Formless and empty, or, now you can see here, the earth was formless and empty. There's a surface of the deep. The Spirit of God's hovering over the waters. So there's earth, there's waters, there's a surface to those waters. There's something here already. That's not creation out of nothing. That's a starting point for something where God is going to work. I also mentioned the phrase formless and empty as the Hebrew tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. What does it mean? Well, you can look at other uses of this phrase tohu wabohu in Scripture. It doesn't come up that often. And um, in, Je- in Jeremiah 4, for example, it refers to judgment. He's describing a post-judgment scene in Jeremiah. says, I looked on the earth and behold... It was tohu wabohu. That's bad. (laughs) And that's something that happened after the judgment of God comes onto this this scene that he's describing. What about Isaiah? He says, God is the God who formed the earth. And he did not create a tohu place. He formed it to be inhabited. So there he's kind of saying tohu is like a waste place, a place that can't be inhabited, a place that can't support life. And so your options here are either by the time we get to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the earth is tohu wabohu. It's either experienced some sort of judgment or it's just simply in an estate unsuitable for life. The Jeremiah verse actually supports the judgment view. And so if formless and empty implies God's judgment on the earth, then something bad apparently happened between verse 1 and verse 2. God creates. He doesn't create in a tohu place. And yet here it is. It's tohu and wabohu. In fact, one, reading, one plausible reading of verse 2 is not the earth was formless and void, but and the earth became formless and void. That would fit better with Isaiah. He didn't create a tohu place. It became that way because something happened. And this is why some call this the gap theory because they see a gap between 1-1 and 1-2. Either way, I think you've got to see a, a passage of time. The question is, was it some sort of horrible event happening that um, really messed up Earth and everything living on it? I don't know. The gap theory sees Genesis 1-3 as a recreation of earth within the past, say, 50,000 years, with a very long natural history before that. You know, Scripture tells us nothing of this past era, although there's a lot that Scripture doesn't tell us about. You know, human-like creatures, hominids might have existed before this recreation. Who knows? Maybe Maybe they were spiritual beings. God just simply doesn't tell us about this time. If there, if there was such a time. We do know there were spiritual beings, though, other than God. You know, by the time we get to Genesis 3, we see, oh, there's this being named Satan, and there's angels. And so there were other spiritual beings. In fact, it is sort of tempting to link, if there was some sort of judgment on the earth, could that be linked with the fall of Satan? Scripture is very mysterious on the fall of Satan. Is it possible this was Satan's planet before he fell? I don't know. 
Um, was this where he was banished to? All we know is that by the time you get to Genesis 3, there's already an evil being in this world named Satan. Well, even if you use the, the traditional rendering, I do think the grammar is better for now the earth, earth was formless and empty. Though the other is possible. Even with this, though, formless and empty is taken as not suitable for life. There's still a long time between verses 1 and 2. And as the camera moves down, you know, we're up at the universe level. As it moves down to the surface of the earth, earth is dark, it's covered in water, and it's unfit for life. And the camera angle is important for understanding the rest of Genesis 1, that it's, the viewpoint is from earth. It's not from outer space. And so a lot of things start to make sense when it's viewed that way. And you can see right here from verse 2, and you see God is right there in control the whole time. His spirit is hovering over the waters. Hugh Ross is maybe the best uh, day age, the clearest um, modern day age author. He's an astrophysicist. He's a Christian. He's written a ton of books on this, harmonizing books like Genesis with modern science. And he actually, in the beginning of this book, he talks about how he came to Christ as a teen, super interested in science, and he started reading the Bible, and he couldn't believe how much it lined up with all the other science he was learning. And so I'm going to read you some excerpts from him as we go through Genesis 1, just so you can see how a day-age interpreter would interpret these different days as well as the starting point. Here's what he says. He says, you know, it's worth noting that water is one of the most abundant molecules in the universe so the watery covering of primordial earth is no surprise. Through ongoing research into how planets form, scientists have learned that planets as massive as earth and as distant from their host star, their sun, typically start with a thick, opaque, light-blocking atmosphere. They studied something like 2,300 of these future planets in similar situations, and that's what they find. And that's, that's what we find here as well in the Bible's description of primordial earth. And then God said on day one, let there be light. And there was light. Now is this about the invention of light? No. Not according to the day-agers. Hugh Ross again, he says, recalling earth's initial condition of darkness and that the frame of reference is the earth's surface, we can comprehend what happened on day one. Not that light was created, but... Light penetrated Earth's dark shroud for the first time. Some of the debris that had previously kept light from coming through cleared away, and Earth's atmosphere changed from opaque to translucent. Not transparent yet, but able to permit light's passage. He goes through several pages on the asteroid collision that caused our moon to form and also made major changes to the Earth's atmosphere. Apparently this, I don't even know if you'd call it an asteroid, it was uh, nine times the size of Mars, hit Earth at just the right angle. And that's how our moon formed, and also it, it cleared a lot of this debris away as well. He talks about that this is one possibility for what might have happened here. But what he says is, with sunlight now penetrating Earth's atmosphere and its surrounding debris cloud, the day-night cycle became detectable on Earth's surface. Light had existed, and Earth had been rotating since its beginning, but day and night had now become distinctly discernible, according to Genesis 1.5. Just as importantly for future life, the much-thinned atmosphere resulted in temperature modulations. 
air and ground temperatures began to vary smoothly and continuously from daytime highs to nighttime lows. No longer were Earth's surface regions characterized by unrelenting cold or heat. With Earth's surface now bathed in light, photosynthesis could take off. Photosynthetic life began to transform large quantities of water and carbon dioxide into food. Sugars, starches, and fats, such food could support a complex ecosystem. Yes. Well, he says God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I do think the evening-morning language makes it a little tough for these super, super long days, um, these super long ages. I mean, you think of evening and morning as a literal 24-hour day. But I guess maybe it's being used metaphorically. Maybe this just talks about the actual evening and morning at the end of that really long period of time. It's another possibility, some take it as. And then on day two, God said, let there be a vault or an expanse, it says in NASB, or a space, NLT. We need a space between the waters to separate water from water. This is not land, this would be well, I'll read you Ross here. It says, so God made the vault and separated the water under from the, the vault from the water above it. This would be sea from sky separation. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. All right, let's see what he says about this. He says, no less significant for terrestrial life, survival than light, is a stable, abundant water cycle. By the time significant land masses would emerge, day three, Earth would require a cycle of condensation and precipitation. It needs to be abundant, but not too abundant. Not enough rain, bad. Too much rain, also bad. You need just the right amount. A system whereby snow, ice, liquid, water freely cycle from one state to another, condensing on and evaporating from Earth's surface would be ideal for life. Let's not take the water cycle for granted, people. <laughs> to meet the needs of an abundance and diversity of species, the rainfall must vary from one geographical region to another. Yeah, different forms of life need more and less water. The range must fall between the extremes of about two inches per year. I was just there last week, the Dead Sea. Gets on average two inches per year, which means some years it gets four and other years, zero. And 600 inches per year in some places. And it needs that, not just for a few millennia, but for a few billion years. So we need a lengthy water cycle with just the right temperatures and just the right moisture and different amounts on different parts of the planet. Yeah, that would be pretty good for the sort of life that God is creating. Day three... He says, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. Hugh Ross again. He says, through most of recorded history, Earth's dry land has just been taken for granted. No one thought to question it as a permanent fixture of the planet. The Genesis 1 reference to early Earth as a water world raised questions and considerable skepticism until 
scientists in the budding disciplines of geology and geophysics began to probe. While solid ground already existed, it remained until this time underwater. As research now confirms, however, plate tectonic activity began to transform the heavy basalts of the ocean floor into lighter rock called silicates. Because silicates are lighter than basalts, they float above the basalts. In due time, enough silicates build up to rise above sea level, and at that point, dry land appeared. Interesting. And God saw that it was good. Some good land. <laughs> then God said, he's not done yet on day three. Day three gets two let there be's. He says, we don't just need land, we need vegetation. Seed-bearing plants, trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. Some of you are like, hold on now, that's the wrong order. Seed-bearing plants, fruit-bearing trees, that's way too early for this. So hold on. Remember what we talked about week one, how Hebrew only has 3,000 words, ancient Hebrew has 3,000 words, compared with 750,000 words that we have? So their words are doing double and triple and quadruple duty. If you, ever read, if you ever open up a Hebrew lexicon, you'll just realize, wow, this word can mean a lot of things. <laughs> so many things. All right, so what do these words mean? Vegetation, Ross points out this would apply generically to any photosynthetic land life. What about fruit and seed? He says this could actually refer to any plant species that has ever existed. <laughs> He's pulling these out of... Um, Theological word book of the Old Testament, that uh, Hebrew resource. Trees include all large plants containing cellulose and could possibly refer to all larger than microscopic plants whose fibers provide a measure of stiffness. So the point is, it's very broad terms being used for plant life here, all right? We don't need to have an apple tree with shiny red apples on it at this stage in the history of the earth. But God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Day four. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Again, God says, let there be, and it happens. Now here, we're creating lights in the sky. What is he talking about here? Well, for many millions of years after light first pierced the dark world, the dark, the dark shroud surrounding earth, the sky would have continued to resemble the heavy overcast of a stormy day. Not a good time to have seasonal affective disorder. Of course, it wasn't really a time when you could have lived either. <laughs> Certain atmospheric constituents, along with air pressure, air temperature, pressure, humidity, would have prevented any break in Earth's cloud cover. Volcanic activity also may have contributed to the perpetual overcast. 
Atmospheric carbon dioxide and water vapor levels are substantially higher than current levels, contributing to high humidity. At the same time, the oxygen level was much lower. Fossil evidence affirms such conditions. Through time, however, changes in these and other environmental factors, such as a lot of stuff <laughs> that you need to be an astrophysicist to care about, would have brought about another major atmospheric transformation, this time from translucent, which is cloudy but see-through, to transparent. At least for some brief moments, probably only a few at first, the clouds would break, making the sun, moon, and stars visible to creatures on the Earth's surface. This will be cool to ask God more about when we get to heaven, this time in, in history. This, so, this, this account is so sparse. So God made two great lights, the lesser light to govern the day, or the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. <laughs> all right, so a couple points here on this verse. First of all, how do we have light on day one and the sun's not even made until day four? Well, there's two options here. One, made can be translated had made. There's only three tenses in Hebrew, unfortunately. Completed, not yet completed, and imperative. And so made could be translated had made. So it could here be saying now, this could be like a parenthetical expression. You know, God had made two great lights. And then he explains now, what he's doing now is he's saying, you can see them from earth. He also might be talking about their function. Or the verb made can refer to working with something that's already there or appointed. There, something happened here. I, I, I think the, the best way to read this is just you can see the two great lights now. Now, the other, the other point here that I think is interesting is in ancient cultures, they worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. These were like the prime deities in their pantheon. And what does Scripture say about the sun in Genesis 1? doesn't even say its name. just calls it the bigger light. <laughs> the moon god? No, that's just the smaller light. <laughs> what about all the stars that they worship? What about astrology? What about all the mythology around the stars? It's like, no, he just made the stars. <laughs> and so we see a real contrast with, I mean, you can see why ancient man would have been obsessed with the sun. The sun is cool. You'd be tempted to worship the sun. We'd be, we'd be in big trouble without a sun. But what do we have here in Genesis 1? The sun, the moon, all the stars, they're just lights in the sky God made. They, he, he told them, you know, put them right where he wanted them for a specific purpose, and uh, that's all they are. They're not to be worshipped. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Day five. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing, with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. All right, what do we have here? Well, 
Ross points out the fossil record testifies that for the first 85% of life's history on Earth, there were no creatures we'd refer to as animals. And suddenly, in shallow seas and on continental shelves, life forms manifesting nearly every conceivable body plan appeared. Poof. And both the Avalon explosion and the Cambrian explosion, both 500 so million years ago, swarms of diverse sea animals abruptly emerged. We talked about the Cambrian explosion last time, didn't we? For the first time in Earth's history, creatures supported appendages, limbs, skeletons, and specialized organs. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Day six. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. That's sort of strange wording, don't you think? Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Uh, this is the, it's statements like that. Some people see support for a, a, a very long evolutionary process from very low, lower forms of life up to higher ones. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. All right, what do we have here? The, these um, livestock, he, he mentions three different kinds of land animals. Ross says these are animals that can be easily tamed or domesticated for agricultural purposes. That's what that word means. Creatures along the ground, short-legged land mammals such as rodents and hares have also been pretty useful to humans for their furs in cold climates before technology provided other ways to stay warm. And wild animals, those that are difficult to tame but have potential to become excellent pets and helpers for humans. So, you know, in all three of these, he's kind of picking animals that have some sort of relevance to humans. So it'd be like your dog, right, you know. It can provide excellent companionship. Also can be trained for certain purposes. And so, <clears throat> You know, we're like, what about the dinosaurs? Where do those come out here? Um, doesn't mention dinosaurs. You're like, why wouldn't you mention the dinosaurs? Well, nobody really even knew about dinosaurs until the last couple hundred years. And so historically, most people reading this wouldn't have even known what that was. You know, he's, he's being pretty sparse here. I mean, it's the history of the world in one chapter. This is theological narrative. It's got sort of a purpose it's driving toward here. Insects don't really come up in Genesis 1. When was the mosquito created? I don't know. <laughs> May have been created by Satan, actually. <laughs> As part of the fall, he got to wake one creature. How could a good God create a mosquito? That's what I want to know. <laughs> But now we, we, see, we see a progression here. Now we've got land creatures. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. So we see sort of a... I don't think kind necessarily corresponds to species. They reproduce after their kind. He made them according to their kind. But uh, maybe it's according to animal type. You know, maybe the kinds are set up and evolution is allowed within that, that branch. I don't know. 
But God saw that it was good. This is good, he says. And then God said something amazing. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. Okay, this is not let there be. This is not let the earth bring forth. He says, let us make mankind in our image. Here we see God referring to himself in the plural. Here we see hints of what would later become the doctrine of the Trinity. And he says, humans, they're not just inanimate objects. They're not even just living creatures like the animals. These are living creatures, and they are made in our image, God says. This is what sets humans apart from the rest of the created order. This is why there's something special about humanity. Our capacity to think, our appreciation of beauty, our longing for relationship, deep down our longing for God. This is the basis for equality. This is the basis for human rights. Human beings made in the image of God. This is why human beings can choose this or that. This is why human beings are moral beings. Why it's just accepted for one animal to kill another, but a human to kill another human? God says, no. That is a being made in my image. Deep down we know this. We know there is something special about humanity. It's this right here. We're in God's image. We're in his likeness. There's something special imprinted on us that reflects the very character of God. We are personal beings like he is a personal being. There's key differences as well between us and God. And yet he has stamped his image right onto us, like an image being stamped onto a coin. And because of that image, he says, they need to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. This whole, this whole creation, you guys need to take care of this. And so... God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both in the image of God. The first poem in scripture right here, verse 27. What does this mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What are the implications of being made in God's image? Well, that's a subject we just don't have time to get into tonight. I'm sorry to tell you. So much material still to cover in Genesis 1 and 2. But I'll tell you what I'll leave you with. I'll leave you with this thought right here. What is man? What is mankind? What are humans? Here's Stephen Hawking's quote on this. He says, you know, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one of among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant.
That's one perspective. The other perspective is this presented here in Genesis 1. That there's a God who called all of this into existence brilliantly over many years. And the pinnacle, the climax of his creation, this created order to be an environment for human beings created in his image with the very breath of his life breathed into them created for relationship with him that's what scripture says about you that you're not just a chemical scum on a moderate sized planet no human beings are so lofty and that's shown by both our goodness and our badness in fact humans are so special to God that when we wandered away from Him, He sent His Son, God the Son. He put on human flesh. He lived a perfect life where He never turned away from the Father. And then He died on a cross for you. That's what God thinks of the human race. And that's why John can say, God is love. That offer, Jesus' death, that can apply to you. You just need to invite him into your heart, into your life. Tell him you need his forgiveness. Tell him you want it. Tell him you want to come into a relationship with God. You want to learn who is this God and who am I? And what was I created for? Something much greater. We'll talk about it next week. God, thanks that you revealed yourself. Thanks that you chose to create in the first place. You didn't have to do that. Um, I don't understand why you did. I'm thankful that you created this good world, that you called it good at every step of the way, that you created us and you put us here. And thank you that even though we've turned away from you, that you continue to pursue us and that you sent your only son as a human to die for our sins, God. I pray that anyone here tonight who's never received Christ would do that. They'd begin, what it, begin to see what it looks like for you to restore your image fully. And that they'd get to be present someday when, that, when everything is made right. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.